for the past two weekends that we've gathered together and studied from the book of Daniel, we gathered ourselves in the great banquet hall of Belshazzar. And if you have listened or followed along, you know that in that moment, something remarkable happened. Belshazzar had thrown a wild, drunken orgy, and the hand of God wrote on the wall. And we watched as the kingdom of Babylon came to a complete and utter end. If you remember, I said to you that it struck me as, as amazing that only two verses are given for the fall of this incredible empire. I mean, all of Babylon, the reign of the entire world fell and in two verses, God described it. The first one said very simply that on that same night, King Belshazzar died. And then in the next verse, it says that King Darius took over. King Darius became the ruler. The Medes and the Persians took over. And this man, Daniel, is the only continuity that we have between chapter 5 and chapter 6. I want to invite you to chapter 6 with me right now. Let's look together at Daniel chapter 6 for the time remaining together this morning. Now, as we think about that, the one thing that I want you to see is very, very pointed and very simple, that even when the plans of man end, the work of God continues. God continues to move even though one Babylon, uh, one empire that we call Babylon has gone away. It's gone by the wayside and a new one has emerged. We see that God is continuing to work. Daniel, this godly man is still around. He's pushing 90 years old now. Think about this. He survives the Babylonians and now he's starting on his second dynasty with King Darius and with King Cyrus. And the scripture reminds us of something interesting. Everybody think about this and listen. If you remember from Daniel chapter 2, we studied the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and there was a statue. The head was made of gold, the shoulders and the chest were made of silver and right on down the line, the, the diminishing uh, elements of its composition represented dynasties. And the Babylonian empire was the head of gold and then the arms were the Medo-Persian empire. So you need to know this, this was a step downward. If you remember this, the kingdoms are decaying. They're, they're going away. Constitutional unity is being eroded and decaying. Why, why do you say that, Pastor? Well, under Nebuchadnezzar, there was an absolute monarchy. What he said was law. If he said it, the Bible said that he would kill whom he wanted to kill and spare whom he wanted to kill, honor whom he wanted to honor and dishonor or uh, with dismay, put away those that he wanted to dismay. But in chapter 6, we see that the Medes and the Persians don't operate that way. They set up more of a hierarchy. In fact, look there with me, if you will, in uh, Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators. The word is actually the word presidents if you will, to supervise the high officers and to protect the king's interest. 
It's kind of interesting. You want to make a note of that to protect the king's interest. Now, Darius is coming into power as the second of all of the world dynasties. It was 538 B.C. when it happened. The gold is now gone and the silver of the Medes and the Persians has come. And this system of hierarchy is set. He divides the kingdom into 120 different provinces and he puts a satrap or a prince over each of them. These supervisors, if you will, were to look over those areas and then he set up three administrators or we would call them presidents. Literally, it's the only time in the Bible that the word president, if you will, is used. The only time. And it's mentioned here and Daniel is one of these three leaders. Now, there are 120 princes and they're set to rule over all of the place. And then Daniel is picked to be first among the three. Maybe because of his seniority. He is, after all, almost 90 years old. But I think it was because of his superiority. And we'll see that from the text. Daniel had proven himself over and over again. Now, if you've done any reading ahead in the book of Daniel, or if you have any knowledge of the book of Daniel, you say, our pastor's going to preach today on Daniel and the lion's den. Well, if that was your expectation for today, you've got to come back next week. Many, many people know the story of Daniel in the lion's den, but what they forget is why Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. They forget why Daniel was given a death sentence. And I want you to see it was not for doing something wrong. It was for doing something right. Daniel, because of his integrity in a wicked world, was given this death sentence. The the king of the Medes and the Persians would ultimately sentence him to die in the lion's den. And we're going to unpack how that story developed. And next week we'll talk about God's faithfulness in the midst of that place. Listen to these words though. They're very telling about our world. When a government legalizes unrighteousness, criminalizes righteousness terrorizes the innocent, and ultimately glorifies the lawless, it has a net effect of energizing God's judgment. And you better believe that if America doesn't do what we have talked about this morning, if we don't repent and see Jesus Christ as our only hope, we find ourselves plunging headlong toward the judgment of God. And that's what happened in this world. You see, we long for justice and we may experience in our world pockets of justice, but we will never fully recognize and realize moments of equity and the beauty of righteousness until Jesus returns in person authority and one day he will do that and we long for that day but how are we to live in this day you see that's the very question of this story when we look at Daniel in this place the Bible is very pointed Jesus said all who live godly lives or long to live godly lives will suffer persecution He told us to prepare for it. He told us to get ready for it. That suffering would be an inevitable part of living a life for Him. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone cheerful, let him sing psalms. Psalm 50.15 says this, call unto me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So how does your belief and how does your behavior hold up under pressure? Are you standing tall or shrinking back? Are you standing out or hiding away? You see, it's easy to blend in with the culture around us, and it's easy for us to say, well, as the pressure gets turned up, then I need to back off. 
But you and I need to see that's the very question for the day today. What are the qualities necessary for you and for me as Christians today to live in a place of maintaining godly character, godly integrity? Whether you're a student or a housewife or a businessman, it doesn't matter what profession or stage of life, how are we to live lives of consistent and persistent attitude of faith and trust in God? Let's look at what this text can teach us about Daniel as an example of that. Number one, I want you to see this. Daniel was preferred by the king. Daniel was preferred by the king. In verses 1 through 4, we've already seen that he was set apart over these other three. There were 120 and then three, and then he was number one. But why? Well, the Bible says that he had an excellent spirit. In fact, it's important for us to see that means he had great ability. God had blessed him with a a unique ability. Here, Daniel is placed at the helm of the, the most powerful empire on the planet. Here, Daniel is in charge. He had again and again and again honored God, and now God would honor Daniel. And there's a lesson in that for us. Your abilities will grow out of your faith. You know, in God's economy, it's different than the world's. In our world, you need to see this. In the, in the, the world of man, it's who you know that gets you promoted. In the economy of God, it's what you are. That's why I, I've said this before. I know men that are serving in unbelievable ministries and making a difference, and you've never heard of their name. But I guarantee you 10,000 years from now, you'll know their name. Because in God's economy, God has take, seen their faithfulness, and as they serve, he will promote them in proper time. If you're looking to get ahead these days simply because of who you know, you need to wake up that the only real significant impact that you can make in this life that will last is that for God. And when you choose that you're going to live your life with integrity, even in the middle of wickedness, you decide I'm going to be persistent in my following of Jesus Christ, it will make an eternal difference. Now, why did Daniel put him in charge in such a high position? The Bible says that he was faithful to his work. The Bible is very clear. He was a beloved man. Three times in this very book, it says he was a man beloved. Church, don't lose sight of this. We'll we'll move forward, but I just want you to get a picture here. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14, put Daniel in the same sentence as Noah and Job. He said he's that caliber of a man. He is a man that is as powerful in his faith. So why did the king put him there? Well, again, the text said he'd proven himself. He was faithful. He was dependable. And these other satraps, it's interesting to me, they uh, were, were doing some things that perhaps the king knew. It says that he wanted Daniel to help protect his interest. Well, I know this will shock you, but there was corruption in the government of the Medes and Persians. I know, pray for them, it's happening. You know, we, we would never dream of there being any government corruption, right? Right. They were skimming off the taxes. They would collect taxes for the king to send from their district back, and they were taken off the top. They were on a gravy train. Imagine that in government, that they would take advantage of their power and their position. And Daniel was an honest man, and he busted up their corruption. You see, Daniel would not let that happen. The King James literally says that it's to to make sure that the king suffered no harm, but to watch out for his interest. And so they hated his guts. He's a foreigner. He is now 
honest and he's turning us in. Their gravy train ended. No more lush vacations. No more tricked out chariots. I mean, our life and our lifestyle is going to change radically because of this man, Daniel. And they hated him. He was honest and he was not going to allow fraud to continue. So he broke up their corruption. I want to say it again. The sixth chapter of Daniel is not about Daniel and the lion's den. It's about why Daniel got put there. And so as we look at this together, notice some things about Daniel. We've already said he had great ability and he was faithful. And you may, you may be tempted to think, Pastor, if Daniel was faithful and he was of great faith and great ability and he got thrown in the lion's den anyway, then what's the point of living a godly life? I mean, Pastor, if I'm going to live my life in such a way that it will honor God, but it may get me in trouble in this world, it may not... Uh, it may preclude me from promotion. It may keep me from advancement. Then why would I do that? You know, it's interesting to me. You need to hear this. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because of his character. He faced suffering, not in spite of it. Don't think that just because you claim the name of God that everything's going to be unicorns and sprinkles on your ice cream. God never promised that. God said this world will hate you. And folks, I think that we've gotten so comfortable that we need to begin to peel that veneer of religion aside this morning. Can we, can we for just a few minutes be honest with ourselves? If you're not facing persecution, maybe it's because you're not counting for the kingdom. Now, I'm not a martyr, and I'm not looking and saying, boy, bring it on, I want to suffer. No. But Jesus suffered for me. And I ought to be willing to stand up and stand out and recognize that the light and temporary affliction of what we'll face on this life and this side of eternity pales in comparison to the glory of eternity. Daniel was willing to stand up and do what was right no matter what. You know, sometimes we get the notion that what God wants us to be is nice. Niceness and godliness are not synonyms. There are a lot of nice people in this world that are lost and on their way to hell. Is that true? You can be nice straight on the pathway to an eternity separated from God. The world hates godliness because it represents conviction. That moves us forward in our text. Let me give you the second thought. Daniel was not only preferred by the king, he was persecuted by the world. Pick up in verse 4. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching to find fault in the way Daniel was handling his government affairs. Well, what does it say they could find? Nothing. They could find nothing to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusation, accusing Daniel, will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We're all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, governors, that the king should make a law that should be strictly enforced. We'll come back to that in a moment. Men and women, let me say this to you very quickly. Jealousy may very well be one of the most heinous evils that we face in this world. Covetousness is part of the Ten Commandments that you would not long for other things so that you would find your satisfaction in God. You see, when you look to somebody else, you're doing exactly the opposite of what was sung about this morning. Some of you need to move to this place where you say, Jesus, you are all that I want. And Jesus, I need you every hour. And Jesus, you're more than enough. 
But we covet other people's positions and their possessions. We covet their life. And most of the time, we look at their life and say, well, they've got green grass at their house, and I want greener grass. And when we search for greener grass, you need to recognize that if green grass grows, and it is probably uh, untended, more than likely there's a septic tank under it. And we're not thinking about that very much. Stop looking for greener grass. Some of you will go home and realize what I just said. Stop looking for greener grass and look to the Lord who created all things. They began to search for fault. They are jealous of him. They decided they would get him. They, they, this aged saint, 85, 90 years old, and these 120 different rulers ruled by these other two evil men. And their plot was interesting. They're going to investigate everything he's ever done. Everything they could find wrong in him, they were going to look to find. And so they sought to find occasion to accuse. We'll check into his decisions. We'll read his memos. We'll check out his email. We'll put together a dossier. We'll scrutinize Daniel so much and we'll find something we can hang him on. It was like the Medo-Persian CIA went in and said, we're going to bug his room. I'm not even sure how they would have done that back then. But we're going to look at every possible way to trap this man Daniel. And the Bible says they found nothing. Kind of interesting. Envy always hates excellency that it cannot reach. The greatest tribute, I think, to Daniel was not just who he was, but it's that they knew what he was. And they tried every possible way to catch him in it, and they couldn't find a thing. He was too careful to make a mistake. He was not going to have a lapse in discretion. He was intentional. I I love this. There's two words there. There was no fault and no error. That means that there was nothing intentionally that he was supposed to do that he didn't do. And there was nothing that he didn't do that he was supposed to do on both ends. He didn't leave anything out by omission and he didn't forget to do anything by commission. He was a man after God's own heart. It's remarkable to me. Sometimes You and I look at that and say, well, I can't be like that. I mean, he was near perfect, and and the world today is bad. Well, there was an old Scottish preacher in the 1800s that said this. It's remarkable that a character and beauty and consecration as Daniel should be rooted and grow out of the court where Daniel was. For this court was half shambles and half pigsty. It was filled with luxury and sensuality and lust self-seeking idolatry and ruthless cruelty and the like. And in the middle of this, there grew the fair flower of character, pure and stainless by the acknowledgement of his enemies. What am I saying? I I can't begin to tell you how vile and vulgar this culture was. You think Washington's bad. You think America's bad. The culture of the Medes and the Persians that had just come out of all of the debauchery of the Babylonians and Daniel still stood. What I'm saying is there's no excuse for any of us. They put the searchlights on him and they found nothing. You need to know this. That didn't come accidentally. And I want to speak to our students today. How many college students are here? We've got several of them all throughout the place. I want to speak to our college students. There is always a price to pay if you are going to seek excellence. If you're going to seek to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. If you're going to seek to be a leader. This happens outside the scope of religion. You'll never find a musician or an athlete that is worth their salt that haven't paid the price. You think about it, you see a pianist that can effortlessly play the piano while their friends were out playing baseball or off goofing off, they were sitting at home playing scales. 
And athletes that are gifted in their field may have natural talent and ability, but they practice their skill. And let me tell you this, if you are going to make a difference for God, it is going to be because you're intentional. When the friends in your dorm decide that on Saturday night they're going to this bar or that place, you need to make up your mind and say, I will stand consistent. Amen? And we've got a generation or two above you that are in this room that can give testimony to that. Those things won't lead you to anything helpful or healthy, and they will lead you to destruction. You've got to be intentional about holiness. Some of you would say, well, God doesn't expect us to live in that kind of a culture. We live in this horrible place at times. No, no, no. Their world was horrific. Part of the price that you'll pay is opposition. Let me put this on the board. Some of you have seen this. You see somebody that's been blessed by God and there will be opposition. Here's what I want you to see. With advancement comes adversaries. Daniel rose to the top because of Jesus Christ, ultimately. God working in his life there in the Old Testament. And because of his stance, he was hated and he was opposed. They had resentment over him. And the reality is they, they resented what he represented. You know, it's interesting to me, the king preferred him. The world wants the vote of the Christian, but they don't want the values of the Christian. Hello? Everybody in the next couple of months will be pandering for the vote of the Christians, but they don't want our values. They don't want somebody who will stand and call sin, sin. And we have so pandered to the gray in the middle that we've lost our voice. Daniel was clear, and because Daniel was clear, he was convicting. And because he was convicting, they hated his guts. Let's move on, and I want to quickly kind of walk into the story. So they set a trap. Verses 6 and 7 say this. I'll just tell you the story. They come bolting in. It says that they entered into the presence of the king. Our English language doesn't do that justice. In the Hebrew, it literally means they came bolting through the door and they were all clamoring. Oh, long live the king. They're singing his praises and buttering him up. And they're speaking fast. Darius, we've got a plan for you. We want you to see this. You are so good. And we've all been talking and we think we've got a plan. And there was chaos. They were trying to catch him off guard. There was urgency. Verse 7, it says, we are all in agreement, all of us. You know that's not true. These are government officials, so you know that was a lie. They resorted to what I would say are two of the oldest weapons in Satan's toolbox. You ready? Falsehood and flattery. First, they lied. They said, Darius, we're all in agreement. Do you notice that there's one man that's missing? The chief president is not there. And they said, we've all voted on it and we're all in agreement. And here's what they went to. That was a lie. But then they went to flattery. They said, we want to make you God for a month. And he said, hey, that sounds pretty good to me. I mean, he, he's just feeling the stroke on his ego. Flattery. Pride is a dangerous thing. And they said, we want to make you God for a month. We want to make a decree. We, we encourage you to make a decree. Nobody prays to anybody but you for the next 30 days. And he said, you know, these guys are pretty smart. They, they recognize in me God-like quality. And because they see those God-like qualities, I think that's right. And they led him to sign a decree that he later would deeply regret. Now, the decree was set 
in the law of the Medes and the Persians. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, you've probably heard that phrase before. It means that it's unchanging. Once something was written into a decree, it could not be changed. And here's why. Because they believed that their monarchs were sovereign. And if their monarch made a mistake, had to change his mind, and then there was nothing about him that was infallible. If he was infallible, then he wouldn't make a mistake. And so if he signed it, he had to carry through, and that's what happened. Well, they have called him into this place, and the bottom line is they're so filled with jealousy. They're so filled with jealousy that they would lie, and they would set a trap. And there's an interesting thing to me. This is yet another illustration that this is a lower kingdom. I mean, it's kind of funny to me. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar signing something that he couldn't, somebody would stand before him and say, you can't, you can't change that, Neb. <laughs> He'd have cut their head off. He'd have thrown them in the fire. But not Cyrus, not Darius, not the Medes and the Persians. No, they said, oh, it's already done. Verse 10, we'll bring this toward a close. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down in his usual, as usual in his upstairs room. With its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to the Lord. I want you to see this. Daniel was persistent in his integrity and his witness. Daniel was persistent in his integrity and his witness. He did what he had always done. Everybody here needs to look this way. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't think of a more important or crucial Christian characteristic than this. Consistency. If you and I would begin to live consistent Christian lives, it would make an impact. Daniel did nothing different. We live in a society of reaction. Some of you say, I love the Lord and I'll live for the Lord as long as I'm sitting in this pew or in my Sunday school class. But you let me get home and I've got a voicemail from Hattiesburg Clinic that they've got test results and I'm going to freak out. Pressure comes and my life changes. Not Daniel. Daniel stood strong. He wasn't reactionary. He was proactive. He got up and he prayed. Because that's what God had told him to do. And that's what he loved doing. And some of us need to get to this place where we navigate life with a consistent walk. When we find ourselves anxious, when the pressure hits. The Bible tells me this in Psalm 46. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. It was suggested that Daniel had a prayer chamber on the top of his house. And the windows were open toward Jerusalem. I wish that we had time to, to walk all the way through this, but I just want you to see, he did that for a reason. That was an act of faith. God had promised that they would one day return to Jerusalem, and so he built his prayer situated toward Jerusalem. As a God-fearing Jew, he said, one day God is going to do exactly what God said. Some of you need to take hold of who's on the other end of the line. Great, great analogy, Doc. I thank you for that. We don't think about it. God is the one that we pray to. The God of the universe. The God that holds all things in His hand. The God that weighed out the balance of Babylon and said, you're like the dust on the scales. You don't have any weight at all. God who let two verses describe the changing of the guard of one world power to another. The God of the universe who died on a cross for you and for me to give us eternal life to free us from the bondage of slavery and sin and death. He is the one that we have access to through prayer. 
And God led Daniel very simply to continue to do what he'd always done. It was an act of faith. Is your life postured in, in faith and prayer? Are you praying prayers of faith? Let me ask you this. If God answered the last 10 prayers that you prayed, would anything significant happen? Have you prayed for somebody to get saved or did you just pray that he would bless your Pop-Tart this morning? Because most of us have gotten comfortable there. Have we not? Verse 11, the governor officials went together to Daniel's house. They found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about the law. Did you not sign that law? And ultimately the king said, yes, the decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and the Persians. Look at verse 13. Listen to their disdain. They say, that Daniel, <laughs> this man Daniel, it says in another place, one of those captives from Judah, he's ignoring you. So the trap had sprung shut. And Daniel was caught in it and the king was caught in it and there was nothing that could be done. Now, I want to stop the story right there, but I don't want to stop the message. So stay with me. We'll pick up in the story next week, but I want us to move forward. The courage of a man of God to do what he knew, even though he knew it carried the death penalty, is just another example of the great character of this man. Even in the face of the death penalty, if you got to the place where rifles were stuck in your face, would you renounce Christ? Would I? I don't know. There's a tombstone at Westminster Abbey. And it says this, over this man's life, I don't know who he was or what he did. It said, he feared man so little because he feared God so much. That was the character of Daniel. And can I just say this without, uh, with, with great fear of founding, sounding unbelievably negative, there are people in this church, there are people that are watching online, there are people all over this city that do not fear God. I know that because they trifle with God in the way that they approach worship, in the way that they approach giving, in the way that they approach witnessing, in the way that they approach their Christian life. They're looking for the blessings of God. They're looking for the hand of God, but not His face. Folks, it is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful, all-powerful God. And I'm not trying to scare you out of hell. I'm trying to point you to the truth. That's what Daniel represented, and people hated his guts for it. There's a parallel story, and I've got to make this quick, but there's a parallel story of one of the early church fathers. His name was Polycarp. I read about him in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Polycarp was an early bishop, and when the Christians began to fall under deep persecution, there was an amazing thing. At one of the, the, the martyrdoms, one of the killings, a man named Germanicus, the crowd said, away with the atheists. You see, they called the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in all of the other gods. They believed in Jesus. And they said, away with the atheist, Polycarp should be sought out. And so they chased after him. He left the town under the advisement of his friends and he began to pray. And as he was praying, he had a dream that his pillow was on fire. And he determined that he was probably going to be burned at the stake. And he even told his friends, I'm going to be burned alive. Well, they caught up to him and they seized him. And he said, my final request is that you would give me time to pray. And he got so caught up praying that he prayed for two hours. And they thought that he was stalling. And so they grabbed him again. One of his persecutors said to him as they were walking him toward the stadium, what harm is there in saying, Caesar is Lord? Make sure of your safety, Polycarp. You're a fool to keep silent. 
He was taken to a stadium filled with people. And one of the other prosecutors there said, swear by the fortune of Caesar and say, away with these atheists. And he said, okay. And he pointed to the crowd and he said, Lord Jesus, away with these atheists. (laughs) Pretty powerful. Listen to this. The proconsul said, reproach Christ or die. And he said these words. By the way, he was 86 years old. I think he was a cousin of Daniel's because he must have read Daniel's life. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served him and he has never done me any injury. How can I then blaspheme my king and my savior? He told them as they stacked the wood, the fire that will burn at my feet will burn for an hour. The fire that will burn at your feet burns forever. Fearless in the face of persecution. Pastor Scott, that guy Daniel was perfect. That guy Polycarp, he had, he had some special sauce that I just don't know that I have. No, here's what I want to give you. And this is how we'll close. I want to give you four simple traits that marked Daniel's life. And these are things that all of us can have. Number one, a consistent attitude. A consistent attitude. And I'd say this word, it was encouraging. When Daniel went to pray, he was praying prayers of thanksgiving. The the king mother said this same phrase about him. He has an excellent spirit. You know, we want to pass over that sometimes, but I want to tell you, you need to hear this. A good attitude goes a long way. I had a teacher that used to say that your attitude determines your altitude. A lot of Christians have got bad attitudes. They're negative. They grumble, they complain, and I don't like being around them. They discourage me. I'm just being honest. And Daniel was a positive guy. They liked for him to have him around. He had an excellent spirit. He had a good attitude. And you need to watch your tongue. Murmuring was the thing that kept the Israelites from entering the promised land. And we grumble and we complain and we do so because it's not faith-filled. You cannot be filled with gratitude and grumbling at the same time. If your heart is thankful for what Jesus has done for you, then the things that come against you don't really matter or shouldn't. Number two, a consistent performance. And I'd say trustworthiness. You can have a good attitude right where you are. And you can be trustworthy. He was faithful. He was faithful. You could count on him. If he took an assignment, he did it. If he set an appointment, he was there. He would let his yes be yes, and he could be counted on. We need more people like that. Number three, a consistent purity. Righteous. The highest government officials in all of the land searched out Daniel's life and found nothing against him. Nothing. We have an inconsistent purity in our world. Heard of a a true story that happened many years ago. A man stopped by a chicken place and he ran in. He goes in, she stays out in the car and he grabs a bucket of chicken for a picnic. Little did he know till they got to the side of the picnic that the proprietor had taken all of the day's earnings and stuffed them into that bucket. And so instead of a bucket of chicken, he got a bucket of money. Well, evidently the proprietor took a bucket of chicken to the bank and they didn't want that deposit. They wanted the money. 
Well, the man felt very, very strongly convinced that he needed to go back and take the money back. And so he went back to this place and he gave to the manager this bucket of money. And the man was shocked. He said, I cannot believe this. He said, in this day and age that somebody would have the integrity to do that. He said, that is such a rare thing. It's a great story. He said, I'm going to call the newspaper and the news crew. I'm going to get them to come down here and take your picture and tell this story. He said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. He said, what do you mean? He said, that woman in the car, she's not my wife. Imagine that we would come to the place that we have inconsistent purity. How impure. But you say, Pastor, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I don't do what she does. I don't think what he thinks. Am I right? And you pick and choose your level of purity and holiness. Here he has a prick in his conscience about money that's not his, but he has no problem running around on his wife. We justify things before God. Dr. Kaler, we will not see revival in this country until we have united prayer. And united prayer comes when all of us get honest before the Lord and humble ourselves and repent. Let's finish this up. Number four, he had a consistent prayer life. A consistent prayer life. He was dependent. So don't lose this. He was encouraging in his attitude He was trustworthy in the way that he carried himself. He was righteous in his overall demeanor. And ultimately, he was dependent on God. Very, very important. We see Daniel praying in chapter 2. We see him praying here in chapter 6. We're going to get to chapter 9 and see the most famous prayer in almost all of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. He was the prime minister of Medo-Persia. He was busy, let's just say. In fact, some of his business probably was just watching over those 120 scoundrels. But some of you say, well, pastor, I don't have time to pray like that. Really? He did. What, what's the reason? Maybe it's because you're not dependent. Maybe it's because when you sang, I need you every hour, you were lying. I was lying. Brother West, thank you for letting us sing truth. I'll finish up. There was a poem written in 1875 and it was about this matter of prayer. How should we best pray? Do we need to get down on our knees to pray? Daniel did. The proper way for a man to pray said Deacon Lemuel Keys and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say, the way to pray said Reverend Dr. Wise is standing straight with dispatched arms wrapped in upturned eyes. No, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is much too proud. A man should pray with his eyes fast closed and his head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be clasped, austerly clasped in front, with both of his thumbs pointed toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a standing on my head. (laughs) Some of us need to get to the place where we pray out of dependence. Daniel did this three times a day. And Daniel continued. This is where I have to finish. I know we've gone way over our time. Maybe it'll do us a little good to spend 10, 15 more minutes in worship this week. What would it look like 
If we develop the consistency of life that helped us to grow. You see, Daniel was a teenager in chapter 1, and it said, and Daniel continued. I don't want to be a grumpy old man. I want to be a man who loves Jesus and has a stronger impact every single day that passes. I don't want to be foul in my spirit and I don't want to corrupt the well and I don't want to poison other people with my opinions. I don't want to sit on the premises. I want to stand on the promises. I want my life to count. And when I'm 70 or 80 or 90, if the Lord has not come back, I want my life to look like Daniel's. May it be said of all of us that we would develop such a consistency that the grumbling would go away, such a consistency that the passion would rise, such a consistency that Jesus Christ would ever be on our lips. Because we are dependent in prayer. Amen? That, that's as simple as I can make it. And if you're a teenager today, I hope that you can pick out some models of people that are older. You see, Daniel continued from the time he was a teenager. We saw it when he was 30. We saw it in his midlife. And here we see it in his 90s. May God fill this church with people like that. Let me pray for us and we're going to see our announcement loop together and then we'll go. Father, I pray that you would take the words of Daniel 6 and that you would apply it to the hearts and lives of the people that are in this room right now. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.